Hola. Hey, hey. what's going on, man? Nothing much. Now I don't have to type my words. What? Now I don't have to type my words. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I'm, I've never been much of an instant message guy. Yeah, me so neither. I always, I, I always lose my patience pretty quickly with writing out every thought. Damn it, the stupid recorder did not kick in automatically like it's supposed to. I can always send you the audio. Well, but I, I, I want to be recording a, a copy on my end just in case because it always makes me nervous to only have one recorder running. Last uh, night, if you had told me that, that it didn't record, I probably would have pulled it out of my head. Cause, I, I know. You know, because I was just thinking, when was the last time you gave three plus hours to your family? <laughs> Did you? You may not have seen uh, your, your no, wife. No, actually, that. I've been staring that, at that, trying to figure out how to answer that. I was literally just looking at that going, okay, did you have to post that on Facebook? Uh, my wife would do the same thing. The only thing is I just wasn't sure how much of a sense of humor she has. I, I'm assuming she put it on there joking or she wouldn't have done it publicly. Kind of, uh, sort of, but not really. But the problem is is that it's not true, you know? I, oh, I, 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 my family does not suffer for my art, you know, at all. So I would have been surprised if you told me otherwise. But I, I was going to put some sort of, you know, that we're your podcasting family or something like that. But I wasn't sure if she'd think it was funny. <laughs> I wanted to put something to the effect of, um, you know, like, what show do you guys do or something like that, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine how that would go over. So I didn't you missed out on a good time last night, Mike. Well, unfortunately, I have seen like four James Bond films. So, dude, I brought very what, what we kind of just it, it kind of just worked out that this way. Um, I don't think we went in with any solid plan for it to wind up this way, but it, it basically it ended um, at the Moore era, and we're going to pick up with uh, with uh, Timothy Dalton next time around. And I realized, <clears throat> excuse me, as soon as the conversation started, you know, I really don't have a hell of a lot to bring to this episode. I mean, I'd seen all the movies. But Sean Connery is just not doesn't interest me as Bond at all. So I I didn't want to be negative. So I just I I really had very little to offer in the episode. And then the ones that I am more familiar with with the Roger Moore ones, it was in like a vague sense. It's like oh yeah, I kind of remember this scene and that scene, and you know I remember this movie. And Luke just dove in with like character names and plots and years, oh. and I was just like holy. I am way out of my depth on this show. So I mean, I, I, I love Bond, but I was out of my depth with Luke. He's yeah. he's so on top of it. Yeah, I had no idea he was such a, a Bond file or whatever the hell they call themselves. Luke will so. surprise the f*** out of you about what he knows. Uh-huh. He really but will. But he, uh, I mean, he, he really, it, it, was, it was really good that Andy invited him on, though, because he gave he, so much he carried the information. Episode. Yeah, he really did. Yeah, he totally did. Well, Otherwise, you know, if if he hadn't come on and it was just me, you, and Andy, we probably would have ended up with a tangent-filled show. Yeah. Because we wouldn't have had as much hard data as he has, and we would have just gone off on some conversations. I, you know, that's entertaining, too, I hope. But uh, this it way it was be. more... It can be. You know, I guess it depends on how self-indulgent it gets, you know? But, uh... For the most part, I, I, I find 
you know, as long as long as you get people who actually talk about stuff they know about at all, you know, even if there are tangents, it's fine. I think this, you know, this show that we do is Tangent City. That's In a good way, fun. though, right? Yeah, that's what makes it fun, I think. Do I? Yes, and I have my book. To which I am greeted with silence. No, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I agree. God, Scott, you chose the ugliest book ever. <laughs> it, oh, yeah. Spider-Man looks good. Mm. Oh, are you talking the book I'm bringing in tonight? Yeah. You guys both brought, brought DC books to the table. What the hell's up with that? Well, you know my deal. Because mine's, Not... mine's a DC book. And You're... mine is a non-DC proper, so I'm calling it an indie. Oh, for Christ's sake. Oh, no, that's fine. That's cool. <laughs> I was about to say, what the <laughs> f***? This was your idea, Scott. You were the one that was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. What the hell? I, like, like that, I meant like that, uh, that, that, that indie, uh, what do you call it? Not indigo. Um, vertigo? Vertigo shit is what I was talking about. Oh, but no, Vertigo I, shit. I, Some of it was good, Scott. Not all of it, but, and really not a whole lot of it, but still. Some of it was rather good. That's the book I chose. It's cool. Um, uh, hmm? It's funny when I did that. Uh, what, what I remember that back issue spotlight thing with uh, Bob Brito. Uh-huh. Uh, his his attitude was he wanted to do books that you know like people like, or, or he wanted to do books that we liked, like that you'd come on and you'd give it a positive spin. Like he said, if you know if it turns out it's a book you really don't like, I'd rather not even cover it at all. Uh, I think tonight's episode is not going to be that for me. Because <laughs> I have negatives on all three of our books. Oh, all right. Well, this should be interesting. <laughs> all right. I, I can't say any one of the three would be one of my big favorites. Although maybe you guys will sway me on yours. I don't know. I don't think you'll sway me on mine. <laughs> you know, I don't want to break the rhythm by restarting the call. If you think we're really all right just recording on your end, Mike, I'm going to say f- it for tonight because i am so tired of fighting with this goddamn skype recorder so you know i I think it's kind of impressive sometimes that you know we'll stay up till three four in the morning doing this shit but i was blown away by the fact that anthony and anthony andy got up at 4 30 in the morning to do this right i'll stay up all hours but i'm not getting up early i'm not an early i'm just yeah i don't do early while I didn't have to do 4.30 in the morning a couple of the times that I've done the Hulk podcast, I've had to get up after four hours of sleep. So I know, I feel his pain. That's why uh, I was pretty firm when Jeff and I had him on FCTC that I'm like, uh, you know, I told Jeff, I go, Jeff, you're going to have to get up early because I'm not making, you know, you're going to have to get up at like 9 or 10 o'clock because I'm not making Andy stay up till 5 o'clock in the morning just to do our show. That's not fair to him. So, and maybe it's because, you know, Andy's a friend and I worry about such things. Stephen Lacey was willing to stay up, holy shit, like long, like as long as we wanted him to. He was up to like five o'clock in the damn morning, so. Yeah, this this wasn't too, too bad because Andy's on vacation this week. Mm-hmm. So he said, he you know, he, he basically got up early, did this with us, and then took his wife out to breakfast. Oh. All right, so you guys want to get started? I do want to get started. I am good to go and ready to launch. Tom Morgan worked on Captain America? When the hell was that? 
Probably during the Gruenwald era. Oh, yeah, you know what? I think he did Cap when Cap was in the armor or something, right? Ugh. Like when he was dying? I think it was Dave Hoover. I think Morgan was right before him. Because Hoover... Hoover did Starman after Tom Lyle left. The Roger Stern series. Right. And I really liked... I mean, I liked Tom Lyle's Starman better, but... Um, yeah, I liked Hoover. I, I I know who you're talking about, and I do. Now that you say that, you're absolutely right. This says here Captain America was uh, was 87 and 88. I'm not sure exactly. I think, yeah, that probably is just before. 87, 88. Yeah, that's what it's saying here anyway. What I'm looking right, at. That's right after. That'd be um, right after Mike uh, Mike Zach, right? No, Zach ended before growing. Zek ended in like 84. You said 84, 85? No, 87 to 88. That would be right after um, the whole John Walker as Cap thing. Right. Or maybe it was during that era. Why can't I remember the artists of that? Because I didn't really like the art all that much during that. I love the stories. But the art bugged the crap out of me for some reason. Gruenwald had some really good artists and he had some really shitty artists. I felt bad for the man to be saddled with the... But then again, his run is up and down as well, so... Right. Not that I want to speak me... ill of the dead. Are we back? We're back. Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode number 99, one away from 100 and we still don't know what we're doing <laughs> in episode number 100. So we may never record it. But for now, we are on episode number 99 and I am Paul Spataro. I am joined by my two very good friends, Scott H. Gardner. Hello. And Michael Bailey. The H stands, stands for Horatio. <laughs> Hornblower. I thought the H st stood for how you doing. How you doing? How you doing? I thought it, I thought it stood for hell. Like, <laughs> huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Ed McGinnis Superman figure is looking on me rather sternly for laughing at like that. <laughs> I've got. And how are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing fancy. Hey, you know what? Actually, more than great. I'm uh, I'm actually on cloud nine, mostly because I'm now on vacation. So, uh, I'll so be I've... there in a week. Oh, dude, I'm telling you, it's it's great. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I I'm uh, you know as as we record, as we sit down to record this episode, um, I am officially on vacation, and uh, tomorrow night, you know, Chris Honeywell should uh, should breeze into town, and uh, and Star Wars Celebration officially begins. So, I am psyched. I'm ex the pro only problem is I'm going into it pre exhausted. I'm so wiped out. I had literally have not slept decently in like a week and a half, but. Uh, I'm hoping to, to, you know, once we're done with this show tonight, I'm hoping to just sleep my ass off tomorrow, get up, finalize uh, packing and, and last-minute things, and uh, and be good to go. But, uh, 
I, uh, you know, between prep work for, uh, for celebration, you know, just normal podcasting stuff, just normal household stuff. I also uh just this evening um I completed my first uh my first training. I I went through trainer training at uh at my job at uh at Walt Disney World and uh, I had my first padawan this week and uh and I had to uh I had to cut the braid off and and send her out into the 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 brave new world all by herself tonight and uh I was so proud. <laughs> Both well, you uh, know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm well, jealous of you for being on vacation. Uh but I'm thinking as tired as you are, just imagine those poor poor people spending something like 32 hours on a bus with Chris. <laughs> I know. <it>. Ooh. <laughs> They're gonna be like, damn, man. Thing. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Thirty-two hours goes by and he doesn't slow down in the slightest bit, and everybody around him saying, "Damn, I want to go to sleep." Nope. And he's just pounding back energy drinks or whatever the hell he drinks when he's re- good God. I'm not sure Chris knows has two speeds. I think he has one, and that's it. What's hilarious is just as we got recording, he winds up on Skype. So he's actually on the bus right now, and he he checked in via Skype for just briefly. It looks like he's disappeared again now, so I, I'm, I'm imagining he probably just briefly caught a signal somewhere. But this is what he writes. He writes, yeah! He writes, this bus reeks of piss. He writes, hey, lady, don't fall in! <laughs> That's it. That's all I've heard from him, so... But it's awesome, though. I, well, then he's doing fine, and hopefully he isn't having the explosive shits that he had uh, right. the last time. He came. Oh my God, I forgot about that. He did. He had explosive. T- <laughs> uh, wow. Too much information, guys. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> oh my God, I can't. All right, and so we're done. Everybody, it's been a great night. <laughs> It's kind of interesting because <laughs> as this episode is coming out, I am actually going to be at Dragon Con. Yes. And you are going to be a week after Star Wars Celebration because last episode, which people are probably still listening to, uh, we had that special with Andy and I talking about the Hulk. So it's kind of interesting that you're talking like this now because... When this episode comes out, I'm going to be where you are a week ago, but <laughs> none of that has happened yet for us. <laughs> I'm weird. Are we going to break the uh, the time space continuum with all this stuff? Yes, that would be yes, awesome. We are just as long as you don't run into the past, Mike Bailey, and just destroy time as we know it. Now, if I run into the past, well, depending on which past Mike Bailey, because there's a lot of past Mike Baileys, but I want to walk up to him and go, idiot! <laughs> <laughs> Slap the shit out of him. That's funny, I'm going to do that to past Mike Baileys, too. Yeah, well, past Mike Baileys wants to kick you right in the yabos, just to tell you. But no, we got a, we got a lot coming up. Uh, exciting geek stuff. I, I will be uh, hip deep in... Uh, Pussy? Well, yeah, at some points. But uh, I don't like talking about that on the podcast. <laughs> oh, sorry. Because it always got brought up over... It, it seemed like every time I left, when I was on the Spider-Man crawl space, 
you know, right there at the end of the episode, Rachel's coming in and giving me the thumbs up. So, whoa, uh, yeah, it was always fun. But, um, but no, it's uh, you've got Star Wars celebration with um, with everybody. Yeah, <laughs> and I've got Dragon Con with just about everybody else. So, and I got nothing. So. Aw, well, well, you know, it's, I'll be on vacation with my family, like, don't like, you got, like I'm the supposed start to of be. College football season starting now too. Don't, don't you like that? Or are you just a pro fan? Yeah, I, I'm just a pro guy. So right now, I'm watching uh, preseason. Scott, please uh, avert your ears. I'm watching the preseason, and my Jets suck. It's really, really bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I feel bad for you. I'll just uh, pull a Will Sanchez and take a little nap while you guys have this conversation. Some might consider that a Mike Bailey, sir. <laughs> I just I just have to keep telling myself the preseason is meaningless because I've had preseasons where my team won like crazy and then they sucked during the regular season anyway. So hopefully they turn it around and do the opposite this year. So what are we doing first? Are we doing comics or emails? Uh, you'd let, you tell us. I vote emails. Emails works. Because we skipped them last time around, and I see that we got a we got a pretty full bag here, and uh, and some really good ones too. So I vote emails. Uh, Alrighty, well, I'll start us off then with Mr. Jason Trenner. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me revealing his name, as I know him as a, on, under another name. It says <laughs> not spam you get not spam. <laughs> he pays it. Jim. I know, I love that. Not spam, you guys want, to t- want me to talk about G.I. Joe? Okay. Hey guys, love the episode covering Nick Fury, a shitty Silver Age comic, and G.I. Joe. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. <laughs> it is. About the G.I. Joe live action movie, I honestly enjoy it. You know, I got a lot of crap about that from writing into Andy's show as well and, and talking bad about the uh, 1987 animated G.I. Joe film. I, I stand by my opinion. Uh, going back to the email, I honestly enjoy it. It wasn't high art, but it was fun and enjoyable. Then again, I also compared it to the abomination that the live-action Transformers movies are, and it isn't hard to be superior to that pile of garbage. Trust me, I could take an entire hour of podcast time ripping into that tripe. As for the Transformers, I recommend to Scott the uh, I recommend issues to Scott, but there is one catch. The catch being the really good stuff requires a bit of knowledge of the back history of the comic. It isn't something you go into cold. I'm not really sure you could even go into renegation, uh, renegation, regeneration one cold. Well, maybe the last stand of the Wreckers. Maybe. The Wreckers are basically the Autobots versions of a black, black ops team made up of the obscure guys. And they tend to get blown to pieces and die a lot. They first appeared in a Marvel UK Transformer comic, which has been reprinted by IDW, but not sure if you'd want to read them or not, as they tend to recap the last issues in each issue of the story, and I kind of got tired of that convention of comics of the era after a while, especially when I read the previous issue of the story. On Nick Fury, I thought his his body now produced the Infinity Formula. That may be true. I, I know we talked about that he doesn't need it anymore, but I'm not 100% sure. Oh, and guys, I liked X-Men The Hidden Years. Why does nearly everyone bash about it? Didn't we kind of say it was an okay read? I think so. I don't think we bashed it. I think that's I know why I said, said nearly. I... Pretty... <laughs> Maybe that's why he, he qualified that statement very good. Mm. 
Uh, anyway, on the Stern Burn front, you guys need to review JLA Classified Issues 50 to 54, where they end that series on a high note and a great story. I'd argue that a little bit. I don't think I've read story. it. it, it it's, it's not a bad story. It's just not the best Stern Burn. That, uh, well, that's that kind I've of a return, a return to Stern Burn. <laughs> Keep up the good works. So could you guys review the Shogun Warrior series on the show? Right after I read this email, I looked in my database because uh, I thought for sure that I had at least one issue of Shogun Warriors, and it turns out I do not. So I've either gotten rid of it at some point in the past and just don't remember doing so, or I'm confusing it with an issue of Godzilla in which Red Ronin appears, one of the two. I, I could do I that. I have a couple of them. You do? Yes, I definitely have some. So maybe, you know, we might get to those. Yeah. We're all about taking requests, by the way. I don't know if I mention that very often or, like, ever. But, yeah, we're all about taking requests. <laughs> I don't know why that was funny. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm totally down for that. Especially if it's some obscure shit. And most especially if it's obscure shit that I actually own and it's unread in my you know in my massive unread piles that that actually works for me because again you know the the whole mission for me with this thing is to to get some of that stuff read especially stuff that I wouldn't pick on my own you know to to dig out and read so want me to do the next one if you're in the mood oh jesus another gi joe all right <clears throat> <laughs> now we're going to get a flood of email about that. This is from our good buddy Tom Panarese, and he writes episode 95, specifically G.I. Joe. He says, hey, guys, I just finished episode 95 and wanted to write in and wholeheartedly agree with Mike's assessment of G.I. Joe and its role in those who had their childhood in the 1980s. I was born in 1977. So I like, uh, so like Mike, I was pretty young when I first saw... Uh, when I first saw the Star Wars movies and only saw Jedi in theaters. And even though uh, Star Wars was a huge part of my early childhood, G.I. Joe definitely is what I consider the quote-unquote high point of toys when I was a kid. I only collected the comic for about a year or so in 1987, but the toys were the main focus of just about everyone, uh, uh, every one of my birthdays and Christmas lists for at least two or three years. Mike, you're not the only one who wanted to make sure that he had as many uh, Joes as he had Cobras. I remember writing very specific lists of every figure I wanted, and when I had uh, uneven sides, I would supplement with Star Wars figures, while, uh, which, while not as flexible, were about the same size. And let's face it, Emperor Palpatine made a much better Cobra Emperor than freaking Serpentor uh, and Cobra, uh, was much more menacing with an imperial walker in his possession. <laughs> um, I have I have said this before, and I will say it again. I swear before Almighty God, Tom Panarese and I had the same childhood. Because <laughs> when I read his blog, um, which is Pop Culture Affidavit, mm -hmm. and he talks about like the TV he watched as a kid and the movies he watched as kids, as a kid, it's just like Jesus Christ, this guy and I. It's like, oh, man. It's weird having like somebody who had the did the, the exact same things as you did. So yeah, it's oh man. Uh and yeah, Emperor Palpatine would be much better than Serpentor. 
<laughs> this is one thing about the toys, by the way, uh, that I'm sure you guys know is that Hasbro managed to create what my friends and I still consider the holy grail of toys, the USS Flag, oh. a gargantuan aircraft carrier that retailed for about 90 bucks when it was released in the mid-1980s. 90 bucks was an enormous amount of, bun- uh, amount of money for a toy back in the 1980s, and still is, by the way. So nobody I knew had it. I think we all wound up with uh, the Battle Platform, which was a uh, Joe base that looked like an oil rig with a helipad and weapons. We had pretty good imaginations anyway, so even though there was no air- aircraft carrier in my parents' basement, there was plenty of action. They they call that thing the coffee table because it was literally about the size of a coffee table. It, you could you could park a sky striker on it. I think I remember so, that. So in the 1980s, Tom was having more action in his parents' basement than I was in mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom said he, he says uh, I read the Devil's Due book. Uh, but dropped it before the uh, Joe Casey issues came out. And unfortunately, I also sold all of my Joe comics on eBay a number of years ago. Although I might track down a couple on, uh, track a couple down on eBay because I'm going to the Baltimore Comic-Con in a month and Larry Hama is scheduled to be there. Woohoo! Thanks. Dude, Tom, just go to, to, go to my uh, InStockTrades.com and get the, the trades from IDW that they're putting out. It'll be cheaper than buying the issues. Just pick up uh, the the two issues of uh, For Your Eyes Only. You can get those, I'm sure, for like a quarter apiece. <laughs> did Larry Hammer write He that? did, yeah. We discovered oh, that wow. last night. <laughs> um, he says, uh, thanks for bringing uh, up great memories, and Paul is a great addition to the podcast. It's always great to hear a fellow New Yorker. Take care, you, and let's go Mets. Uh, he just went up a, a, a whole step in my eyes right there. <laughs> If he, if only he put something about rooting against the Yankees, we'd be totally on board. <laughs> and again, Scott tears, blah blah blah. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Tom. And our next message is from Dave Walker, who apparently starts off by speaking in a foreign language of some sort. Uh, it says, "Hey guys, Paul Spataro sucks." I, I I didn't know those words could be used in a sentence together. But then he goes on to say, is something I don't want to say. So welcome, Paul. You're an interesting fellow, and I enjoy hearing another voice and another viewpoint on things. I'm sorry I don't have any constructive criticism or praise for you, but I may be able to come up with something eventually. I guess there's nothing quite like uh, inspiring uh, apathy. Uh, I've <laughs> I've been reluctant to write in Ever since I called Scott out on saying I had no right to enjoy Star Wars if I wasn't in theaters when it came out, and he ignored me. Did you do that, Scott? That is not true. We actually did address that on the air somewhere in some episode. That's that's not true. And I hope he's only kidding about that. I, I hope that that's not really true, that uh, that he's felt hesitant to write in ever since. Because then I'll feel really bad. Because I, I know that we have addressed this on the air somewhere or other that, uh, that I was largely kidding about that. Well, see, I think there's, there's an age gap where it makes a difference. Uh, when Star Wars came out in 1977, I would have been 14, mm-hmm. whereas I guess you would have been eight 
I was nine. Yeah, I was nine when Star Wars came out. I think you were far more in the wheelhouse for that than I was. Probably, you know, not not that you like Star Wars more. Well, you may like Star Wars more, but but I don't think, you know, it's not. I think you have a different experience because of that. Right. And I think, you know, Mike, who would have been too young to go until, I guess, Jedi came out, right? Yeah, I was seven when Jedi came out. Yeah, so, you know, you never got to see it on the big screen unless you saw it with the re release. Uh, and I, I think there's a different experience. It's not that anybody has more or less of a right to enjoy it. I mean, that, that's not the case. But I think there is a different frame of reference when, you, you know, when, when you're right in that age. When you're, say, between 7 and 11, when a movie like that comes out and you get to see it in the movies, it makes a difference. Right. That, you know, it becomes like part of your childhood that you know, other people don't have. It's different. So I, I I still struggle with exactly you know being able to to verbalize exactly the point I was trying to make with that. But let me let me see if I can if I can do it a different way. And I, I I'm going to use a, a Disney analogy. See if you can see if you if this makes any sense. But there used to be a ride um, at Disney in Epcot. It was called Horizons, and it was this great attraction that basically projected what the early 21st century was going to look like from a 1983 standpoint. You know, what, what we really expected, you know, the, the, the years that we're living right now were going to look like. And if you've ever seen a movie like, say, 20, you know, 2010, you know, the sequel to 2001, you, you have a pretty good idea of what we thought, you know, present day was going to look like back then. It was going to be very futuristic. We'd be living in space and under the ocean and, you know, we'd be terraforming deserts and all this great stuff. We'd have robot servants and just all this really, really fantastic stuff. I love that attraction, and I'm heartbroken that it doesn't exist anymore. And I probably know as about as much about it as you could possibly know about it, you know, from all the information that's out there, all the books, all the audio files, all the music, just all the backstory and history of that attraction. I... You know, come just just shy of saying I'm an expert about it. I never rode that ride. It, it was gone by the time I became a Disney Parks fanatic. So I've actually never physically been on the ride. But I know it backwards and forwards. I could quote it to you. Hmm. But in my mind, someone that only ever rode that ride one time thought it sucked and walked off of it and and never experienced or even thought about it again has the edge on me because they were there you know they experienced it which is something i'm just never going to be able to do that to me is the difference between someone whose ass was in the theater seat in 77 and saw star wars and somebody born afterwards i'm not saying your passion is any less for for all i know your passion could be greater i know that my passion in the instance I just gave is greater than the casual person who rode the ride one time thought, eh, that was all right. And walked away and never thought about it again. I know it is, but at the, at the same rate, it's just, you know, I'm never going to be able to compete with the fact that that person actually got to do it. They were there and I wasn't. And that, that to me is the big difference. And I was really, I, I, I'm serious, I was really largely joking when I said that I'm dismissive of people, you know, that are Star Wars fans, but they weren't really born in that era. I, that's not really what I meant. I was joking about that. It's more of, 
you know, give the props to us guys that actually were there. You know what I mean? Oh, oh it, come it, on, Scott. Just admit it. It's the I'm old and therefore things that are younger than me are fearful and I should make fun of them. Well, yeah. that's true, but that's yeah, besides that, uh, Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's, okay, it's like good. a that couple of months ago. It's like a couple of months ago, Scott, when you and I had that very lengthy talk about uh, Planet of the Apes. And I'm not sure if you're a bigger fan than I am, if I'm a bigger fan than you are, but as you we were having the conversation, you were saying how jealous you were of the fact that I saw that in the movies. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and you know, it, it's just a different experience. And I saw it in the movies when I was, whatever, seven years old. And it, it just became something that, I mean, for years and years afterwards, I always, you know, stuck with that movie. And it, it's, I think it's part of it is because I saw it when I did. I, uh, no, I, I, it's, it's a very, it's a rational feeling to have is the best way to say it. I kind of feel that way about people who came into Superman for the death of Superman, where I'd been reading the books for five years. So I felt like I had a leg up on them. It doesn't detract from their love of that story if they love it. Um, but for me, it'll always be kind of different because I was one of the guys that was already around. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I, I think the the main thing about being a fan of anything is that on some level you want to take ownership of it. Right. Um, whether or not that, you know, whether or not you do that in like a joking way, whether or not you're like kind of serious about it, but you realize it's not it's something you shouldn't take too seriously or whether it's something you're an asshole about. You know, when, when you love something, it's yours. And when other people talk about it, you're, you're, you know, I'm, I'm this way about Superman. You know, when other people talk about Superman, with very rare exceptions, I'm, I, <sighs> my friend Big Honk and Steve once, uh, once said that, you know, when, when you, when you, for some people, he was like this, and I was too, for the longest time. When you met another comic fan, you kind of circled each other. Like, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to feel each other out. Like, is this guy going to be my best friend or my mortal enemy? And, as long as you don't stop peeing on each other to mark the territory. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, with, with something like Star Wars especially, which is not only a piece of science fiction, not only is it a fandom, but it's a, a genuine cultural phenomenon. You know, the people that, were, that had their asses in the seat in 1977 do to a certain extent have something over the people that watched it on video or hbo or regular tv later and came into it because you were there at the moment it was conceived right and there's nothing wrong with feeling a certain even though i know you're not like this scott i know there's nothing wrong with feeling a bit of proprietary ship if that's even a word right over yeah. it because it's just like you know I kind of feel that way about the 1989 Batman film. I was 13 when that film came out, and I think 13 is the perfect age to see that film. Because you're you're not too young where it might be a little weird and scary, but you're also not like kind of like the jaded comic book fan or a bat fan that you know may have seen it just a couple of years late, you know, older. It's just like at 13, that was just like, that was the summer, dude. That was like, you know, a life-changing moment. And, you know, for people who have come, who talk about it now and, you know, say, you know, 
kind of crappy things about it or even call it campy which just makes me laugh uh just because of how that was the entire when <laughs> everything film, about that yeah. film was like this isn't campy but you know for me it's just like no you, you had to be there you had to be there at that moment because here's something it, it, now i'll save this for my for my my book because it actually ties into my book okay but but no you're absolutely right scott and you okay. can sample that for as long as you want. <laughs> so Dave continues, well, partially. I think he brought it up on a Star Trek Monthly Monday where I found out he'd, he'd been kidding, but he ignored my follow-up on that, so I pretty much gave up. Just wanted to share my thoughts on the whole pronunciation thing, some other stuff that came up in episode 95. According to Google, according to Google Translate, Scott is right, and the Batman animated series is wrong regarding how to pronounce Raz. It's not Raish, seemingly. <laughs> Submariner is a strange one for pronunciation, since without this hy- the hyphen, it's still a word for someone who works on board a submarine. <laughs> that may be why Stan put, put one, I guess, into Spider-Man's name in order to prevent him from getting confused with Phil Spider-Man. <laughs> I think I remember hearing the Submariner version in an Avengers arcade game or the game for the Genesis Mega Drive, or maybe both. I have to admit that I myself am guilty of calling Dark Seed, Dark Side, Dark Seed. Never did it out loud, though. Was only ever reading it that way until obviously I got corrected by Superman the Animated Series. You know, I was thinking about something not long after... Uh, actually, I think it was when I was in the editing phase of that episode and we were talking about character pronunciations. There's an episode of... I can't remember what where the show actually came from. If it was a... I want to say it was a Spider-Man cartoon, maybe an FF. But you guys remember when a lot of the Marvel cartoons, like the early, early Marvel cartoons started to come out on video and they were in those big clunky clamshell cases. Uh There's an episode of something that has Magneto in it and they call him Magneto through the entire episode. For some reason that came to my mind when we were talking about pronunciations. They were Canadian. I think that was from uh, the old Fantastic Four cartoon with, with Herbie the Robot. Yeah, it, it could it could very well have been, but I just I, I know that it was a a loose a, uh, adaptation of the Magneto attacking a, a missile base story, and uh, I want to say it had something to do at the beginning. It cracked me up. Something about Magneto was driving a car and stopped at a gas station or something. It was <laughs> that, hysterical. I, I think that's right. I, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah, they did. They <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, so the least of his problems was how to pronounce his name. Yep. <laughs> okay, once again, getting back to domestic. Dave's letter. <laughs> Aunt May is important in Spider-Man because she's a stone around his neck. She keeps him grounded and gives him something to feel guilty about a lot of the time until other characters show up that are able to take her place and until the sweet release of death takes her into its welcoming embrace. We can hope for the time to return, or we can hope for how she was written when she found out about Peter being Spider-Man, when it seemed like she had an actual purpose, other than holding Peter back and having uncomfortable old people sex. I don't know. I, I, I agree with that. 
to a degree, except I, the image I can't get out of my mind with this is from one of the very earliest issues of Spider-Man 2099, when Peter David had Miguel flipping, you know, had the Miguel's robot assistant or whatever, you know, holographic assistant flipping through potential incarnations and one of them was an aunt may type you know very like doting aunt type of thing and he was like oh hell no <laughs> and, and i think right there the point was made very simply in just a couple of panels that you just don't need that character she's not important and they he just was not going to take that approach with that character and that's always kind of stuck with me but then again on the flip side you know spider-man 2099 didn't even run five years so you know there's that too so i don't know but to me i just i i just don't buy it i i don't know give it show me a somebody out there if you know all these aunt may defenders show me a great aunt may story that's not the death of aunt may if if you're so keen on her and you're trying to convince me that that she didn't just always suck and wasn't necessary then uh then show me a great aunt may story <laughs> Uh, you got to go to the Marvel team team up when she uh, went with Franklin. That was a dream. That's good enough. Doesn't count. It was a dream. It's, I mean, but you know, in fairness, Aunt May is a background character. There aren't, really, there aren't that many Aunt May stories. You know, she's she's just there to make Peter feel guilty, as as Dave yeah, mentions. That's, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to seem like a jerk, but I mean, I I, I reject that argument too. I mean. You know, I mean, yes, supporting characters are supporting characters, and they're only supposed to be so important. But you know, Jesus Christ, you know, Lo- Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen held their own titles for what, like, decades? So and, they were and a lot of it was really, really bad, right? But it was good enough to sell books. I don't think anybody ever would have bought, you know, Peter Parker's spectacular Aunt May, you no, know, for for one twenty. <laughs> For twenty years, I mean, I I'm just trying to make a point. I just, I really don't buy the whole thing that she's important. I think she may have been important for say the first year or so as Spider Man because you know, uh, uh, Dave here makes the point about uh, where was it here? Um, something to feel guilty about. I think if you had played at the angle that. You know, because a, a lot in the early days, if I'm remembering my Spider-Man, you know, early, early history well, was Peter kept kind of wanting to get out of the Spider-Man thing. He kept kind of getting discouraged with it and kept trying to give it up. I think if you had used Aunt May more effectively as, you know, I really want to give this Spider-Man thing up, but, you know... My inaction is, uh, you know, to use my powers for good caused my aunt's grief, you know, by by the death of, you know. But I don't think, to my memory, I don't think they ever really used her that way. I mean, Peter felt guilty about Uncle Ben on his own. She really wasn't a constant reminder of Uncle Ben. She was there for a whole different kind of pain in the ass for Peter about because she was sick and dying every other goddamn issue. So... I, I, maybe if they had just used her a little more effectively, I wouldn't feel the way I do about her. But I just, I don't think, I, I just don't buy the argument that she was ever important. I, no, I, sorry, I just well, don't buy it. You know it. what? Back in the 1970s, when she was dating Burt Reynolds, she was hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you deny that? <laughs> I, I never found her attractive, I gotta be honest with no. you. No, not at all. Okay, well, I was the only one, you know why? Because I'm old. Not Aunt May. I think she was kind of cute in Murphy's romance, but... <clears throat> Dude, she's Forrest Gump's mom. Well, I, I, I... Honestly, I'm the guy out there who didn't like Forrest Gump, so... What can wow. I tell you? I may be the only one. But back when she was in, like, The End with Burt Reynolds, I thought she was kind of hot in that. But that's just me. And back to Andy's message, to (laughs) Andy, to Dave's message. Not read any of the issues from this episode, but wouldn't mind checking them out. Paul's for the Infinity Formula backstory. Scott's in order to see if it's really as messed up as he made it sound. And Michael's to see (laughs) if I'd be interested in reading anything related to G.I. Joe, even if I didn't grow up with it. Thanks for the great show, guys. You're welcome. And thank you, Dave, for the message. We appreciate it. <laughs> Do we want to cover the next one? Do we want to cover some? All right, I'll get the next one. The next one is from our buddy Josh Baker, and he writes feedback. That's actually the title of it. He says, "Hey guys," he says, "Been a while since I've written in, so I thought I'd drop you a line. First off, uh, I don't know how you do it, but a." I don't know how. Okay, I want to make sure I read that. I don't know how you do it, but a warm welcome to Ray Romano as the newest member of the TTF band of podcasters. Big fan. He says, "Big fan." What? Paul? Who? Oh well. Well, welcome to Paul. Then this is awkward. <laughs> I can honestly say that's the first time I ever heard that comparison. I don't know really where to go with that one. <laughs> I think you he don't sound a bit like like Ray Romano. Yeah, he, he just doesn't sound like he swallowed a frog. <laughs> I always thought Ray Romano sounded a little more like this. Oh, that's that, yeah. No, that was that was creepy. Uh, he says, "Well, moving right along, <laughs> even though it was a bit of a departure from the usual format, uh, I really enjoyed the Spider-Man and Batman coattail riding episodes. Every pick that was mentioned was great. Um, I think we all really got a kick out of doing those, too, so we'll more mm-hmm. than likely continue to do that sort of thing in the future. And uh, it, it seemed like it was very popular. I know uh, Andy Leyland had, had nice things to say about them as well. And finally, Tomahawk. Wow. He says, I actually want to pick up that book, even if it's only for a chuckle. It amazes me that some people think that clunky comic book writing is something that just started up recently. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Says, I haven't laughed that hard at a comic review since you guys covered uh, Superman and the Amazing Spider-Man. Great stuff. Keep them coming. Josh Motherlovin' Baker. Woohoo! <laughs> we got time for one more? Oh, for this one, we, we do. Ha- we have three more letters. Do you want to just try and get them all in? Sure. All right, I'll, I'll clear take out this the one. basket. I'm on vacation. I'll take, the, I'll take this one from Andrew Leyland. It says, Dear Tammy Lynn, Bobby Joe, and Paul. <laughs> you weren't here for, the, uh, for the, the mistake episode when uh, Andy accidentally addressed it to Mike, Scott, and Luke. <laughs> that was not an intentional uh, one. Okay, go on. You missed the title of this one, too. Oh, Aunt May's a hottie. <laughs> All right. 
Scott expressed befuddlement that Aunt May was important to the Spider-Man mythos. Originally, she was very important. Without her, Peter is in the orphanage. <laughs> as handled by Stan, she was an integral to Pe- she was integral to Peter's development as a character, and Stan didn't go to the oh my heart route too often, and he had the good sense to shove May off the stage rather than overuse her. It's a fair point. He did. Stan liked to add various levels of pathos to Peter and having to get a job to support May was just another way Stan could add problems to Peter as well as to add to his guilt over the death of Ben. This was another way that Peter was different from everyone else. Bruce and Dick didn't seem to give a toss about Aunt Harriet. The dog's (laughs) bollocks means it's right good. That was another one he mentioned, dog's bollocks, and we discussed the origin of that term. (laughs) Yes, we discussed uh, dog text- testicles on the show. See what you miss when you don't come in for an episode, dude? Yes. <laughs> and, and obviously you don't regret it. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of feel about that the same way I feel about my wife calling me at work yesterday and saying, hey, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is coming to Atlanta. You want to see it? And I'm like, No. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you, you, okay, here's how much I don't care about the Spider-Man musical. I had a chance to download the original cast recording for free, and I didn't. Wow. So. I know my wife yesterday, yesterday or today had had a message. You know, she does these like you know she gets these online offers, and uh, From one week for no, nothing uh, untoward. Uh, but she got uh, or Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark forty nine dollars for tickets, so she went on figured at that price she you know we'd get for the four of us and go, but when she went online I think it was seventy nine dollars a ticket and she said just too much money. <laughs> Finishing out the email, however, this week you covered no issues I have ever read, so I got nothing. Take care, Michelle, Stephanie, and Paul. Ah, <laughs> oh, we'll get you for that. Whose is it? Is it mine again? I think we're to me now. All right, go ahead. This is from David, I don't know if it's Breeder or Breder. Independent comic to cover. Hey, guys, I love your shows. I've been listening to them for a while now, and I had an idea for an independent book to cover. Do you remember a little company back in the 80s called First Comics? Yep. Yes. Well, they had a whole line of great books to choose from to cover, but I was thinking if you were looking for a real obscure one from them, how about Warp? It was first's first comic. Very hard to find anywhere. Not many people read it. I did. I've never met anyone else who did, though. Anyway, big fan. Looking forward to the return of the JSA and Jonah Hex. Dave. Now, I have that issue. I have Warp number one and actually was going to do it for my independent book, I don't know, a month or two ago, and I started to read it, and I just didn't have the patience to go through it, and I picked a different book instead. But I may give it another shot. It's got Frank Bruner art in it, and it's probably worthwhile. And I also am waiting for the return of the JSA and Jonah Hex. I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's a one-way ticket you see what you got to understand is that scott and i are not doing it just to see how many people ask about it and to create a, mm-hmm. a sense of suspense so that when i release the unreleased episode that's been sitting on my hard drive for like years um 
it'll 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 be like, yeah, this is the greatest thing ever, even though it was probably just a mediocre episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lie because Scott and I never did anything less than brilliance on that show. Okay. Oh wow, deafening silence. Very good. That's, <laughs> I'm that, sorry. That's... I'm 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 looking ahead at the next one and thinking that uh, that we might want to keep this one for next time around because it looks like it involves a little homework before we All can right. get into it. Okay, well, I, I did we... my homework, but I can wait for you guys to catch up. Okay. The door oh, gate wow. goes, huh? Have you always been a brown noser, I mean, Paul. I mean, whoever the hell you are, <laughs> Luke. Ye- yes, I have. <laughs> Luke, Andy. I'm a, I'm a good boy. Rachel? <laughs> no, you do, you do not get away with calling me by your wife's name. <laughs> that does not work. And I don't get away with calling her by your name either. So I just uh, want thank to God for that. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm, okay, that's it for this episode. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> Stick a fork in us. And once again, either one of you guys ever accidentally call your wife by my name during uh, during sex? Just don't. I don't want to know. I just don't ever let me find out about that. If that ever happened, I would never be back on this show because <laughs> I would think something is seriously wrong. <laughs> well, that's it for emails for this time around. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. Keep those uh, cards and letters coming, as they used to say. Uh, we do appreciate the feedback, um, even when you guys are just wrong. And uh, we're still trying to figure out what to do for episode number 100 and have not yet had a suggestion from anyone. We haven't. Yeah. I, I mean, we. what was the one that, I think it was one that you threw out. And I, I felt bad when I listened back to it. I felt like I, I just like poo-pooed it, which I didn't mean to sound that way. It was just, it wasn't really that I was poo-pooing it. Is it just didn't seem big enough. You know what I mean? But then on the other hand, that's kind of the point with this show was we're supposed to be low-key. So maybe we don't necessarily want to do big. You know what I mean? I just don't know. I I, I would like to do something. Well, I, I know. I don't uh... The, the suggestions we've come up with so far were I had said possibly picking like an all-time favorite issue. You know, this is as close as I can come to my favorite comic of all time. But the problem with that is I have a tough time narrowing it down to that. The uh, only comic that comes readily to my mind to do for that is something that Chris Honeywell and I have talked about for years. Pulling out all the stops and doing an over-the-top enactment of in a in a podcast which i still want to do so i feel like like it would end up kind of stealing the thunder from that so i you know i got nothing for that i i you know i, yeah, I, I mean uh, another choice is to just pick a, a true you know a truly milestone book that we all think is you know a big one and just do a, a you know an in-depth coverage of a book uh maybe something it, like a uh you know like pick one like favorite out of our collection, you know, like, like something that you feel is an underappreciated class, like, like some book that everybody should own, but you never hear anybody ever say anything nice about or something. I don't know. That's NFL super pro. There you go. And, uh, the other, the other suggestion was, uh, hostess theater. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. We all because it's your idea, dude. 
all three of us pick. You know, we go to the what is it, Sean Baby or whatever the hell yeah. the name of that site is. We all pick one favorite or two favorites, depending on you know how long we want to go, and we do a full blown enactment of of all three or six or whatever the hell number we choose. And I I like I, I kind of like that idea. Well, that's because it was your idea. Was it my idea? Yes, that was just was. my idea to bring it back. That's all. No, no, no. When when we were sending the messages back and forth as to what to do for one hundred, you said two words. Hostess Theater. <laughs> no, no, no. I was. I actually was not referring to episode 100 with that. That was just something I wanted to do. Oh, okay. Like I a killer feature suggestion. So like from now on, you know, we do we do a hostess ad like every episode. And you know, uh, we can't let little Anya down. Anya actually uh, listens to us, which is a scary thought to me. But she actually listens to us now for uh, for hostess uh, hostess theater. Uh, you know, as as a parent of a daughter, uh, little Anya's not that little if she's ten. You know, they they grow up quick. Quick, trust me. She's little in stature too. But when, but I guarantee you, if Anya's sitting here listening to this and hears our, us calling her little Anya, she's not appreciating that. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I don't know. So, I, 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 we haven't heard from you, Mike. What are your What are your ideas for for episode one hundred? Um, well, reading the phone book is out. Um, <laughs> it's been can't, yeah, can't do that. I mean, um, two true freaks did it. <laughs> two true freaks did it. Um, <laughs> I say we each get a copy of the Great Superman book and read the whole damn thing on the air. That's that Superman encyclopedia from 1978. Uh, I don't think I have a copy of that. I was just kidding, dude. It, it, it's a huge book. It would take us like days to, to read the whole thing. You know, so. we were we were just talking about like all time like favorites. We could always do like all time like shit comics too. See, then again, I don't own the one that I hate the most anymore. So, you see, the thing that? is though about that is. For this show, I've always felt that when we get a turkey, it's because you've never read that issue and you didn't realize it was going to be a turkey. So it doesn't sound like you're insulting it. Right. It's just like, oh my God, I can't believe this was as bad as, you know, as it turned out to be. Right. I think choosing a bad comic on purpose <laughs> is, it, it, it doesn't feel right for this show because this show is about the celebration of comics. And for the 100th episode, which is freaking huge. Um, we, um, you know, it doesn't feel right to, to, to go negative basically for lack that's of a, a better that's term. A, you know, that's a good point. Um, choosing our favorites, you know, again, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the other side to that. Uh, I think the best way to celebrate this show is do something that the three of us have never done. Uh, Shut and, up. <laughs> well, we're never going to do that. Is that would do, be an interesting show. <laughs> is for an episode, go back to the um, the old format, but with a twist, where we don't choose a comic to bring. Each of us chooses a comic for another person, and the only two people that know what comic that is are you know you know if if I choose one for Scott, Scott knows the one I picked for him. I know it, but Paul doesn't know it. Yeah, I had I had kind of a similar idea of us choosing books for each other as well. I thought that might be an interesting way to go. 
That might be. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. You I scared me. You scared me for a moment with going old school because I thought maybe you uh, you might have a similar idea that I had. Uh, briefly, I entertained an idea for about two minutes um, about going really, really old school, but uh, I'm I'm not going to actually throw that out there publicly. If if you're curious later, message me and I'll let you know what I'm talking about. But um, I like that idea. I think that works as as well as anything else. But. Uh, you know, there's we we just have to be careful not to abuse our power and purposely set the other person up to read just like the lamest piece of shit you ever you ever heard. No, of, you know? you choose a book you really really like. Oh, I got you. Okay, and but then you know you, you know, know what might be a good idea is choose a book you really like, but you think that the person you're choosing from probably has not yet read. Okay. That's I mean, and, and there's no guarantees that that's going to be the case. It might be that it turns out the person did read it. But, you know, See, I Mike think that's gave kind of me NFL book. Super Pro, so I'm pretty sure he's read it, but I don't, you know, maybe not. I thought you gave me NFL Super Pro. <laughs> I don't know. We probably keep passing it back and forth. <laughs> Happy birthday. Well, Here well, you go. It, it, it is kind of like the video from The Ring. If you don't let other people read it, you know, like a girl climbs out of the TV and tries to kill you. <laughs> I like right. that idea. I think we maybe uh, we're running a little long that we haven't even started our first book yet. So maybe we should get on. Oh my god! I, yeah, you're absolutely right. How can I be holding this uh, epic missive back from a, a from a salivating audience? All right, so I go first, <laughs> right? We are uh, we are talking about Marvel, right? Yes. Okay. You are the guy. I don't know why the hell I can't ever remember the format of this show, loosey goosey as it is. All right, so for this particular one, and you know what? Speaking of going old school, we are going completely old school with this because I don't have a synopsis, I don't have notes, I don't have shit. I read the issue, and I'm going to give it to you as best I can. So for this one, we are going back to... Where are my glasses? I can't read. 19... <laughs> Old man. I know. I Seriously, the print's so friggin' small in this Indicia. I can barely read it. 1994. It's not giving me a month or anything. Just a year for uh, what is a very weathered and waterlogged copy of Real Heroes. You're going, huh? the hell is real heroes real heroes was a four issue i don't think you can really even call it a mini series it's more of a mini imprint from marvel comics that was published exclusively as a freebie giveaway promo whatever you want to call it for pizza hut restaurants Mm. and uh I lack one issue of this. I've been trying to collect all of them. I, I lack one issue. I don't think I'd ever actually cracked the cover on any of them. As a matter of fact, I think that this is the only issue I have of the series that's not still in the bag. I think the other ones are actually still uh, in the bags, and I think there might even be something in there like a I don't know, free trading card or some shit. But believe it or not, this did come up on, uh, on Random Number Generator, and uh, I pulled it out. And my initial reaction looking at it was like, oh, God. Because it it's very 90s. Very, very, very 90s. But, you know, the longer I kind of lingered over the, the cover image and everything and then it, it began to read it, my opinion began to change a bit. Anyway, story is called Blowing Smoke. <laughs> Make your own jokes. Uh, written by a guy mm-hmm. I've heard of, uh, Evan Skolnick. 
Art by Tom Morgan, um, and that's as far as I'm going to go with the credits. Everybody else, and it's just standard letters and letters and uh, everything else for the 90s. Story starts off, this young kid walks into a convenience store, asks for, asks for a pack of smokes, and when the guy behind the counter doesn't card him for the smokes, the kid goes ballistic with some sort of like, you know, Emperor from Return of the Jedi type mind trick thing. He's shooting lightning bolts and force energy and everything else. And he basically just wastes the entire convenience store. The Amazing Spider-Man just happens to be like conveniently swinging by this neighborhood, sees the store on fire, goes to help out, rescues a woman that's falling out of the building, blah, blah, blah. Gets into a fight with this kid and it is just pretty much getting his ass handed to him because this kid's just mega, mega powerful with this energy that he's got, this lightning bolts and telekinesis and everything else. And Spidey finds himself wishing that, you know, somebody would come to help him out, like the the Fantastic Four, the Avengers. He says, uh, heck, I'd even welcome the new warriors at this point. Flip the page. Who sh- shows up to help him out but Firestar of the new warriors also, Iron Man and um, the Human Torch. So they show up, and uh, what's really cool about this is they defer to Spider-Man. And Spider-Man uh, has a moment, and he says, uh, you know, I'm not used to playing Team Captain, but all right. So he starts barking orders, and he sends the Torch in to basically suck up all the flames, because the Torch can do that. He sends... Um, Firestar in to kind of back up the torch and help uh, you know save lives and rescue people, and then he uses uh, Iron Man as you know he's the big gun of the group, so he sends Iron Man in to battle the kid, and together they're finally able to not really so much uh, subdue the kid as just kind of ride out his temper tantrum while they talk sense into him, and they they finally end up talking him down. And it turns out, of course, that the kid's mom um, died of cancer due to smoking cigarettes. And the issue wraps up pretty lamely with a kind of, well, you know, you can't really blame the corner, you know, the corner grocer for cigarettes. And this wasn't really the right way to take out your anger. And, you know, we hope you learned a lesson here as you go off and enjoy the next 20 years of Juvie Hall or whatever the hell, you know, is going to happen to this kid. And it ends with uh, Spidey and the gang staring up at a, at a cigarette ad and basically going, that's just not cool, man. All right. The story is almost inconsequential here. It's, I mean, it's a promo comic and it's preachy and it's, you know, cigarettes are bad. I get that. Not the greatest read. But I was impressed as hell by the art in this. Um, Tom Morgan... Not a name that immediately jumps, you know, to the forefront of my mind when I think about great artists or even think about forgotten artists, which we've done an episode or two about in the past. But whenever I see this guy, I'm always like, oh, yeah. And I really dig his stuff in this. I really think um, probably the best way to describe Tom Morgan is he's Bill, uh, you know, imagine the, uh, not Bill Sienkiewicz, um uh, help me out, guys. Who's the guy that did like the question and Dennis Doc- Cowan? Dennis Cowan. It's it's like Dennis Cowan meets Alex Saviak, and I really dig it. I think it's a really nice combination. It is very '90s. It could use a little more refinement, 
But there's a great, great panel on page seven. It's the second panel on page seven where Spidey has just saved this fat lady and then he comes jumping down from the ceiling to battle the kid. And this is like classic Spider-Man, although he does kind of look like he's doing the crane from uh, from the Karate Kid, but it's still pretty awesome. Spider-Man looks really, really good in this. I love the, the use of shading and stuff. I love where he clocks the kid, but good. Um, Iron Man has one of my least favorite Iron Man armors in this. Thank space, you. But I really like the way it's drawn, even though I don't really like the armor. I do like the way it's drawn here, and it does definitely look very shiny and metallic. Firestar, I don't really have an opinion on one way or the other. I like Firestar a lot as a character. This outfit phase for her was absolutely horrible. And the torch looks like the torch, except the one complaint, this was the one art beef I had throughout the entire issue, is I don't th- think that there is a single panel with the human torch where he doesn't have a, f- a single wisp of flame coming off of the middle of his forehead. And no matter how you see it or how it's colored, every time it comes off looking like he has a yellow horn sticking out of the middle of his forehead. He looks, <laughs> he looks like a devil, basically. And it was just kind of bizarre looking. I, I know he, he was trying to show him as, you know, being on fire. But it seriously, it comes off looking like the, the torch has a horn sticking out of his head. Um but that's pretty much all I got. You know, I, I I dug the art. I thought it was pretty cool. I really will try to to seek out the others of these. I'm very curious if the others are even by Tom Morgan. I have no idea. But it's fun. I actually am a huge fan of promo comics. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on any show before, but I actually collect promo comics, especially free promo comics, because uh, I just get a kick out of them. They're they're rare and uh, and generally really goofy. You know, like Superman versus the Quick Bunny and shit like that. But I love them. I love them because they're just goofy. This one, not really so much goofy as, like, really lame, you know? But that's all I got. What would you guys think? Did either of you guys get a chance to, to take a peek at that? Yeah, I read it. What'd yeah. What would you think? You want me to go first, Mike, or you want me? Uh, I, I've got like three or four notes. Uh, Spider-Man was the, actually the only thing about the art that I liked. I, I really didn't care for the... This kind of like, like reminded me of a better version of the art from Darkhold number one. Um, <laughs> I just I just didn't care for it all. Uh, care for it at all. I mean, and, and... I could go on about how I feel about people that are this anti-smoking, but, uh, you know... That that would that could dovetail into something that's almost political, so I'll stop. Uh, I do like the fact that this kid is the uh, the supervillain version of what's his name from Clerks, who yells "Cancer Merchant, Cancer Merchant." <laughs> um, and I hate this Iron Man armor. I mean, I just hate it. I, I just wh- what, did he read a couple issues of Superman and go, "I'm really going to go for that as my my middle thing" because that looks awesome. Uh, and I think that the writer missed. Uh, prime opportunity by not having Iceman with Firestar. Yes. Because mm. it could have been a good Spider-Man and his amazing friends thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, uh, in, in the, the the thing about the art that I'll agree with you is that Spider-Man pretty much throughout the entire story looks awesome. He's a little beefier than I like him normally, but Morgan definitely gets how this character is supposed to look. 
because in just about every panel, he is in a different position. He is never static. He is right. always in motion, and it looks really cool. Yeah. I mean, like like the scene of him catching that woman who's falling of indeterminate race. Um, I mean, he looks. it almost looks burn right there. But then on the next page, it looks like Alex Saviak. Yes. And then it looks like, you know, a little Ramita. And it's just like you get every version of Spider-Man in this issue except McFarlane and Larson. Uh, and and even, he even goes kind of like 60s Spider-Man animated series in the scene where he's jumping all around fighting the guy where all the web lines are dis, uh, are, have disappeared, but the costume still looks really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just like Spider-Man throughout this issue, I have absolutely no complaints with. Just really cool. And yeah, wow. You really, you can't do Joe Camel, so you're the puffin bird. <laughs> <sighs> All right. What do you got, Paul? Well, I don't want to criticize the story. Uh, I think it is very preachy and full of exposition and not necessarily, you know, kind of clunky. Uh, but I think it is, you know, it's being distributed for a purpose to try and to, you know, to appeal to young children and tell them, you know, hey, smoking's not good for you. Uh, you know, no no real, I don't think there's anything too, too controversial about that. Uh, so I, I don't want to criticize the story so much, but I really did not like the artwork in this thing. Uh, I thought that this was an example of, like, the excesses in art of the 1990s. Which I think you kind of said, Scott, at one point. Uh, and I'm not really a critic of the 90s as a decade, as so many people, you know, it's it's popular for them to, to just put that whole decade together and criticize it as if nothing good came out. I, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think a tremendous amount of great stuff came out during the 90s. But I think there were a lot of artists working uh, that I almost go to what we were saying about Liefeld last week that he almost got advanced faster than he should have. Right. And I think that there were a lot of artists that were working in the industry that had talent, but hadn't really harnessed that talent the right way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that that comment was not isolated just to uh, Rob Liefeld solely. Uh-huh. I, I feel that way about you know most of the hot shit artists during the 90s. I think most of them got pressed into service far too soon. And, and I really look at this one and i i don't the art at all uh it looked to me and it's funny because you started to say uh, bill sienkiewicz uh bill sienkiewicz is is a tremendous artist mm-hmm. but his style only fits certain types of stories when when they've used bill sienkiewicz on stories that don't fit his style i really don't like it Right. Like when they when they had Sienkiewicz drawing the Fantastic Four, I did not like that at all. I didn't think it fit. Wow, when was that? Uh, just before Burns Run. Well, I, I'll have to go look at that. I don't remember that. Uh, well, there you go. Now, now maybe uh, maybe your next Marvel book. Uh, but as as much as I like some things by Sienkiewicz, like I said, when he's on the wrong thing, I don't like him. Uh, and it's not that I don't like his art, it's that I don't like it on that book in particular. This story almost looked like a combination to me of if you took Howard Chaikin and, and Bill Sienkiewicz and mashed them together. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not a fan of Chaikin, which we've discussed, and I don't think Sienkiewicz's style would work on this book. So the combination doesn't really work too well. Uh, I wasn't, I was looking at the Iron Man 
uh, drawings and I did not like them and I, I wasn't really uh, focusing on the actual armor, which now you've called my attention to. Uh, and, and yeah, you're right about that. Uh, but even the way this particular armor is drawn, it looks to me like it's not an armor. It looks, the, it looks as if it's drawn like a costume instead of an armor. Uh, and, and I don't, just don't think it looks right. Uh, I don't think the facial renderings in the book are good at all. I don't think the storytelling is good. Uh, some of the bodies, with the exception of Spider-Man, because you are right about that, the, the Spider-Man drawings are good. Uh, but some of the other bodies look very, very stiff. Uh, Mike, you mentioned when the woman is falling and the, the woman of indeterminate race. Yes. Like her, her body position in that shot and her face in that shot uh, just don't look good to me at all. Uh, some of the, some of the shots, all of a sudden, you know, something different is happening. There's no development of the story in them. Uh, there's also points where there's a lot of rubble laying around and it's, it almost seems as if the artist used that as an excuse to not provide detail. Uh, there's a scene on page, uh, what page is this? 11, uh, where the torch is kind of absorbing the flames and it just looks like an incomplete drawing to me. It looks like he started to draw it and never bothered to finish it. Uh, and there's another shot on page 15. Yeah, he does look like he's transparent or something in, in, that, in that panel. I, I think what he's trying to do is to show because, absorbing the, because he's absorbing the flames, he's becoming so, so hot that he's almost like bordering on white hot. But right. I don't think it's an effective rendering of what he's trying to do. Right. Uh, there's a shot on page 15 where you see the, uh, the young boy that they've been fighting. And if you had, if you didn't see him in another panel, you would think he was a girl. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You know, I, I, and that's, that's the whole thing about this issue really for me is I just couldn't get past the artwork and, and some of the shots of Spider-Man are really good. But other than that, I don't like it at all. And I guess, you know, I think I've said before, sometimes you get what you pay for and it's a free book. Right. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I don't want want to be overly critical of it, but I I got the feeling that I I wasn't familiar with this artist, but I got the feeling that it was more or less, uh, hey, we'll let you draw this free book, and if it goes well enough, maybe we have more work for you kind of thing. Right, yeah. But at least you get some free breadsticks. Yeah, there's an anchovy right in the middle of it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Son of a bitch. And that's pretty much what I got on this one. I had anchovies as a title. (laughs) All right, I guess I'm next. All right. I was going to know what you were about to say. Spider-Man versus anchovies. (laughs) Well, folks, I I decided to go back in time for this one, as we usually do. But also, uh, more than just discussing an old comic, uh, and I feel bad saying old because it's from 1987. So um, this book goes to my very, very early days of collecting comic books. As a matter of fact, the cover date, which is August 1987, which means it probably came out like May or June, is actually the cover date of when I started collecting these Superman books. So that uh, that alone makes it a, put a big old smile on my face. I remember when I got this book, too. The previous day I was at a uh, picnic, company picnic of my father's, and I had fallen and hurt my back, and I was, you know... 11 so you know dad's like well you want to go get a comic to cheer you up but everything was closed so we woke up really early the next morning and went to the 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 newsstand to get this this is batman the new adventures number 410 
And it is written by Max Allen Collins, penciled by Dave Cockrum, inked by Mike DiCarlo. Todd Klein and John Costanza were the letterers. Adrian Roy, colorist. Denny O'Neill, editor. And it is the story title is Two of a Kind. That's right, folks. We're going back to the early days of the post-crisis Jason Todd. And I, unlike Scott, I have no notes and no synopsis written. So we're going buck wild on this one. We open in the Bat Cave where an intense training session is happening. Bruce has been training Jason Todd ever since he found him basically stealing the tires off the Batmobile in a story that is largely bad. I don't know if you all have ever read Batman 408 and 409, but the reintroduction, while good in concept, was not really all that good in, in, um, in execution. Anyways, Batman and, and Jason are fighting on a mat. They get to tussling, and Jason drops Bruce Wayne, and we continue to see some of their training, which includes... This is really weird. A, a, apparently, he's teaching Jason to shoot because they use a lot of firearms in their line of work, uh, I guess. He also teaches them the rudiments of criminology and computers. And Jason, at one point, asks about, you know, what's the deal with the king-size coin? I mean, I've heard of inflation, but this is ridiculous. And Bruce says, basically, it's just a little memento. They start talking about the old days and of all the people that Batman and Robin fought during uh, over the years, including Two-Face. And we are treated to a retelling of Two-Face's origin, where he was D.A. Harvey Dent, a rather handsome guy that had an underworld figure on the stand, Boss Maroney. And while cross-examining him, he brings out Boss Maroney's l lucky two-sided coin, and Maroney freaks out and apparently was able to smuggle acid into the uh, courtroom, spills it on Dent's face, but unfortunately, even though his life was saved, his face was constant was forever scarred un until they did surgery, and then it was scarred again. And he took that coin, which was a two-headed coin, cut a cross into one side, and that became his modus operandi. Whenever he was about to pull a big job, he would flip the coin. If it came up clean side, he didn't do it. But if it came up scarred, oh yeah, it was on. And we even get a, we even get a scene of him robbing a double feature of Rocky and Rocky 2. So, uh, J Jason goes off to do a little training by himself, and Alfred's like, uh, goes, are, are you sure you really want to talk about Two-Face? Because, uh, you, know, you, you know, Jason's dad was a flunky for him, right? And that Two-Face killed him, and then that would probably be a really bad idea to let Jason know that because it you know, might mess with his head a little bit. And Batman's like, I got this. I intend to channel the skills Jason brought with him combined with what I've, uh, I've taught him to send him down the right path. And after that, he gives Jason the Robin costume. Just in time for the Bat Signal to appear over Gotham City. Batman heads out meets up with Commissioner Gordon and introduces him to the new Robin. At which point, uh, Commissioner Gordon says, you swore you'd never pair up with a child again. And Batman says, this child is older than both of us, not to mention tougher, which is a line I always hated. So Gordon gets down to why he called him there. Apparently, Batman received a letter care of uh, the police commissioner central headquarters and inside the letter it was five playing cards two kings 
two Jokers, and a two. And Gordon also says, oh, by the way, got some mugshots of some petty criminals that have headed into town, and hey, they're twins, so guess who's back? Well, if you guess Two-Face, then you've been paying attention to the previous part of this issue because they've been talking an awful lot about Two-Face. And at this point, not having Two-Face in the story would be kind of silly. So Two-Face and his men, meanwhile, are at the Lucky Dollar Casino. that They're uh, preparing to um, <laughs> to rob it. it. It's got a really great um, um, lineup, too. Apparently, it's got a exclusive engagement by Mugu Guy Schwartz and his fortune cookies. Um, <laughs> I'd really like to see that. So basically, Two-Face's plan is this. Uh, apparently, the Frink's Armored Car Service comes and gets all the money from the casino right in the middle of like the busiest time. And Two-Face's idea is basically we're going to rob them as they're coming out, and they're not going to shoot back because the place is going to be packed, but they know that we'll shoot back at them, so they'll give up the money. So they face off against the the frinks people i almost said brinks but you know copyright frinks people in the middle of the uh, casino there's some words exchanged two-face shoots one of them in a really good looking panel actually and apparently two-face has arranged to have a duplicate frinks truck show up with the other twins that he hired so that they can finish up uh their so they can escape when they open up the false Frank's truck, Batman and Robin are already inside, and they have knocked uh, knocked out the second set of twins and make pretty short work of the current set, except Two-Face, of course, has another gun, always carries two, and he holds a woman hostage, and Robin basically convinces him to basically let the woman go and take him because he's a better hostage, Robin and Two-Face drive off. Well, Two-Face takes Robin and drives off. Robin hits the the brakes as they're driving along, causes an accident. He's able to escape, but so does Two-Face. Later, in the Batcave, Robin is all excited because, well, you know, he had his first big mission with Batman. Batman's a little put out that Robin, you know, made himself a hostage, but he says it's what the original Robin would have done and that, that, that he and the original Robin are really two of a kind. So Robin stays up and does a little homework, little research into Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face, and discovered that Willis Todd, petty criminal, is presumed dead, and that Two-Face believed responsible for further info, press return, and that's when Jason Todd finds out that Two-Face killed his father. dun 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 to be continued. Um, I have very mixed feelings about this book because on one hand, it's part of my childhood and therefore I like it. And on an, uh, on the same hand, it's got art by Dave Cockrum and I rather like Dave Cockrum. Um, it is not the worst of the Max Allen Collins. Have you guys read the other Max Allen Collins Batman books? From this era, yes. Yeah. I've okay. read some of them, but I never focused on it. I never really cared for his run with Batman. Um, there was always something a little bit off about it. Yeah. Uh, the the two issues before year one are kind of awful. The two issues, as I was alluding to earlier, that uh, retold Jason Todd's origin in a post-crisis world have a really good concept behind them. 
but the execution is kind of lackluster. This and the issue that follows it, which I didn't read until like almost 15 years later, are actually rather good for his run. Um, the art's a little off in places. Uh, Cockrum would later talk about these issues and say the basically describe them as he was given some awful Max Allen Colin Batman stories to draw. But really and truly, I think as uneven as the artwork is, in because in places Robin looks like a cherub and then he looks like a little kid and then he looks like a small adult. It's really weird and kind of all over the place. However, there are some panels like the uh, shot of Robin and uh, of Jason and Bruce like using the firearm. Um, the gun w- is actually kind of cool. The the panel lay the page layouts are rather neat. I like the retelling of Two Face's origin on an artistic level, and the whole scene with Commissioner Gordon. Batman looks pretty badass throughout this entire scene. But there are other places, like I was saying, with Robin especially, just he just looks freaking off. And in, 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 towards the end of the book, when they're driving in the car, there's the shot of Robin sitting there with his cape kind of drawn around him, and he just he doesn't look right. He looks weird. It's it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Well, I don't like it, but I'm just I'm just not a really big fan of it. And the and the look on his face towards the end of the issues, like the expressions are just really wonky. However, having said that, uh, story-wise, I really don't have too many problems with this. I am not a huge fan of Two-Face, but I like the character enough to see, you know, I, I kind of dig it when he when he shows up. I think tying Two-Face into Jason's origin was an interesting way to take it uh, and would actually be kind of used in for Dick Grayson in Batman Forever, oddly enough. I was really uncomfortable with Bruce teaching Jason how to use a gun. Um, but that's just because, to me, Batman would pretty much n- not even want to pick one up. Uh, it, they justify it. By saying, consider a teacher who requires skills be developed even with the weapons that the very teacher scorns. And in just a couple of issues, in the second Jim Starlin issue of Batman, Jason uses a shotgun, fires it at some security guards to get them running. He's not trying to kill them. But it's just really weird to see guns and Batman mixing in a... You know, in a situation where he's just like, no, the, the, these things are these things are awful, and we never use them. So, um, overall, I still really like this story. Uh, I think it's very entertaining. I guess my only other problem is I hate it when a plucky young kid is introduced, and the adults are, and one of the adults says, "This child is older than both of us." Not to mention, no, no, he's not Batman. He's not. Yeah, he's a street kid. <laughs> and he's been through a lot. But uh, you're not going to look at Commissioner Gordon, who has seen the worst Gotham City has to offer, and say, you know, he's kind of older than you, Jim, because Jim should go, you. It, it, it's like, I guess the final thing I'm going to say about this is, is, is the weirdness of this era for Batman is that we're in the post-crisis world. And we're also in the post-Dark Knight Batman Year One world. But the comics really haven't 
taken the darker tone that they eventually would. So you have Batman Year One, which is a story I rather like. And then you follow that up with a bunch of Bronze Age-style stories. And I'm not saying that as a, as a pejorative. I, I rather like the Bronze Age, and I especially like what Jim Starlin brought to it. But it's kind of weird to think that these came out after... Like, for somebody who found Batman because of Dark Knight Returns, these were the issues they were given. And it must have been kind of weird. Uh, but that's pretty much all I got. What about you guys? Well... I really like the cover. I could start with that. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. It's got a two-face holding a gun to Robin's head with police and Commissioner Gordon surrounding them, and then the shadow of Batman and his cowl kind of covering them over. Uh, I don't know why they went to the new adventures. Is that because of Crisis? Yeah. Because uh, otherwise it almost makes it seem like, you know, the, uh, the cartoon universe. Right. Uh, just from the, from the cover. Uh, I am. A, I like Dave Cockrum. I liked him on Legion of Superheroes. I liked him on the X Men. Uh, I liked him when he did a, a little run on the Avengers. Uh, I'm not crazy about the this issue. Uh, I think it's very inconsistent. Uh, I'm not really fam- too familiar with Mike DiCarlo, the inker, uh, but I I'm putting most of the blame on him on this one. Uh, I don't think that there's much detail in the backgrounds. And I think usually that falls to the anchor. In fact, uh, you know, Vince Coletta is famous for erasing backgrounds and, and not putting them into issues when he uh, inked them. Uh, the line work, especially on people's faces, seems to be very heavy and thick. And I, I just don't think it falls right. Uh, in particular, the, the twins... With the green suits, uh, their their faces, the line work is, is particularly heavy on them. Uh, the story, well, you start off with, uh, you know, the, the Two-Face sends uh, basically a clue to the crime he's going to commit. Is it Two-Face or is it the Riddler? Because that doesn't seem like a Two-Face thing. Uh, if you cut to the first page where they're in the casino, which is on page 14 or I guess it's the the full page of the casino uh, if you look at the bottom left hand corner there's the Marx Brothers standing there <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if you noticed that no I didn't actually and then there's I guess a craps table on the right uh, and just standing facing us at the, at the end of the craps table I think that's Laverne and Sherwood uh, which I guess that would be the anchor also that would be throwing that stuff in there. Uh, but it did kind of take me out of the story when I saw it. Uh, it seemed like Two-Face, like I, I see Two-Face as a pretty intelligent character. I, I know he goes flies by the seat of his pants and that he flips his coin to decide which way to go. But it seemed like he had no plan all here. It was just like, let's go in and you know, I'll call it as it goes. Except for the fact that he had another uh, armored car coming. And uh, I, I thought some parts, some parts of the story were kind of silly. Two Face Mobile that he has in it that seemed very silver agey. Uh, and then the other story point that I didn't like was if Batman is coming right out and telling Alfred uh, that he doesn't want Robin to know that Two Face killed his father, 
why would he let him find that out at the very end? See, I'm kind of with you on this, Mike, because I I have really fond memories of this time period, you know, both of, of Batman um, specifically, but just comics generally. I mean, this was during my time. And, you know, when it comes to Batman, I wasn't missing an issue of Batman or Detective. I, I bought them and really loved them at the time that they were coming out. But occasionally, you know, as, as happens with certain things, you know, you go back and you look at them and they just, they don't seem, you know, as awesome or whatever in the, in the harsh light of day, you know, today as, as maybe they did back then. I generally speaking, I really like the art in this issue. And uh, one of the reasons is I really like Batman in just about every, uh, every page and every panel for one of the reasons I like him is that when he's, you know, he, he's not afraid to smile in this. There's an awful lot of, of panels of Batman smiling. But when he's on the job, he's Batman. He's got a scowl. He looks serious. He's taking the job seriously. And he's he's doing what Batman does. But when he's not doing that, he's not afraid to crack a smile or even crack a joke. I kind of like Batman like that. You know, where he's serious when he has to be has to be serious, but he's not just depressing all the time. You know, he doesn't have the the Grim Avenger thing going every single minute of the day. I, I think there needs to be a balance. I think that's what Robin's supposed to bring to Batman anyway, isn't it? I mean that that yeah. he's supposed to be, you know, that that Robin was kind of pulling back Batman back a bit from the abyss and that's kind of the feel i get from this is that this is this is batman kind of lightening up because now he's got a new robin you know he's got a new junior partner i i don't particularly care for the art with jason in this and and it's funny because the robin stuff looks pretty good i like him as robin it's specifically when he's just uh civilian um, Jason Todd, I think he looks his, his. I think his face looks funny, like his head's a little bit too big or something. <laughs> he just looks a little weird. He'll grow into that. Um, but that's really all I have. I, I, you know, I really deeply regret that I just, I simply did not have time before the show to give the the issue a proper reread. I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, flipping pages and looking back through the issue. Um. But I didn't get a chance to reread it. But you know, maybe it's maybe it's an honest critique enough to just say that the story doesn't stand out in my memory. Really, none of the Max Allen Collins stories stand out in my memory. So I think maybe that speaks, you know, whatever about them right there is that they're not particularly memorable stories. But I remember my impression at the time of Max Collin, Max Allen Collins' run on Batman at this time was, you know, much like I've complained about with, with other creators and other mediums' take on Batman, I had much the same feeling during this time with Collins that because he was a serious detective author, you know, a serious um, prose writer of criminal fiction that I, I often got the feeling that he was 
bringing to Batman and trying to inject into Batman elements that didn't previously exist in Batman in an effort to kind of, I don't know, I guess maybe make him more realistic to maybe mature him or something. And I remember chafing against it, that I really didn't like that, that I felt like a writer's job is to come in and write the character not to come in just because they're a hot shit, quote unquote, real writer and suddenly start, you know, injecting a lot of stuff just to, you know, try to, to, to make it, to make themselves feel better that suddenly they were writing a comic book as opposed to the next great, you know, Sam Spade novel or whatever. That kind of, that sort of thing really bugs me. And, and I didn't care for him doing that with this. Maybe that's just my personal interpretation, but that's how I remember feeling about it at the time. Although one element I did like was, I'm almost positive that it was during Colin's run on Batman that there's a line in there somewhere where um, Jason and Batman are talking in the Batcave and Jason does remark that Batman has killed people in the past when he's been forced to. Basically, when it was a kill-or-be-killed situation, he doesn't revel in it, he doesn't celebrate it, but Batman's not afraid to kill somebody. I always kind of like that, because I think that that's a realistic approach to Batman that I can actually deal with. I don't want to see Batman out there being the Punisher, wasting people left and right, but at the same rate, I think you kind of kind of have to go with that thought that, you know, if, if Batman really is totally against killing even in a killer be killed situation that I think then you're kind of then you are kind of comic booky. You are being kind of a little bit too naive and a little bit too silly with the concept. But again, I'm just as content to read that comment in the comic, and that's as far as we ever got. I don't actually want to see Batman kill anybody. But that's pretty much all I got on this. Um, I dig the art. I, but see, I like uh, Mike DiCarlo a lot, too. I look at this, and I see a hell of a lot of Booster Gold in it, because Mike DiCarlo... Um, actually, this would be right around the time he was um, inking booster gold for uh for dan jurgens right that was right around this same what year is this book 87 i think so 87 yes yeah so yeah this is right uh right at the same time he was working on uh on booster gold i don't care for the cover though that, <laughs> that's all i got yeah this would have been right in the right right after i stopped actually collecting so I have no nostalgia factor whatsoever for this one. This is, you know, books that I picked up after I started again. Hmm. But uh, our next book is our indie. And I guess I have to qualify this because I'm really not totally indie today. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we did it on the air or if we did it in a private conversation. But we had discussed how do we define indie books. So let me do that now on the air. Uh what we agreed was that if it was not part of the Marvel or DC universe proper, if it didn't have characters that were a part of those universes, that we could count it as an indie. So I picked a book that's actually published by DC Comics. It's called Blitzkrieg, and it came out in February of 1976. 
It's got a 25 cent cover price, and it is listed as Searing Battle Sagas of World War II as Seen Through Enemy Eyes. The cover is by Joe Kubert, and it shows a group of Nazi soldiers in the foreground facing a building where we see a woman hugging a smaller boy and a body slumped over the windowsill. One soldier is saying, Do not shoot, Hugo. And the other replies, Orders are orders, they are enemies, and this is war. There are two stories in this issue, and the first one is titled The Enemy. It's, the script is by Bob Kaniger, and the art is by Rick Estrada. The story opens to Radio Warsaw, where they're saying that as long as you can hear the Polish national anthem being broadcast, you know that Warsaw has not fall, fallen to the Nazis. We cut to some Nazi soldiers who are admiring the music that they're hearing and talking about bread and water that they're eating. Uh, as one is taking a drink of his water, a bullet pierces his canteen, and they realize that the bullet came from some Polish people in a house that they're passing. They immediately rush and blitz the house, shooting all the men, and then observe the scene that we see on the cover of the book, where there's only a woman and a young boy left. One of the soldiers says that they are the enemy and that their bullets kill just as deadly as soldiers. At that, they unceremoniously open fire and kill the woman and the boy. We hear the radio broadcast continuing, and the soldiers continue as well. One of them asks when they can stop to eat, and is basically bitch-slapped down by the other two. As they continue, uh, machine gun fire starts towards them from a bakery, and they turn fire and then turn uh, a grenade into the bakery. After the explosion, they continue into the bakery and shoot any survivors that are left. But before they leave, they grab some bread which I'm figuring is probably full of shrapnel from the uh, grenade that they threw in there. The soldiers watch as a stream of what appear to be women and children and elderly are fleeing the area, and a young man who's carrying a violin case goes to the bakery to warn the baker, but as he does so, he's shot, and one of the uh, soldiers exclaims that Hugo shot a civilian. Hugo responds that their own men have been shot by civilians, and the other man bets that the violin case is full of explosives, but they open it and it only contains a violin. They leave the bakery and they join a tank troop who are going to the radio station to silence the broadcast of the national anthem. They reach the station and they open fire, and someone within throws a Molotov cocktail at the tank, but the soldiers are able to fight their way into the building, shoot all the people inside, including the person who's broadcasting uh, about the national anthem, and then they shoot the record player. As they leave, the scene cuts to an elderly man in an upper story looking down at them from a window. And as the German troops are walking, he's queuing up a record of the Polish national anthem, showing that they haven't totally uh, basically whipped all the people yet. And that's the end of the first story. The second story is a little shorter. It's titled The Huns, and it has the same creative team as the first story. It shows Attila, Attila the Hun in the year 433 AD and his battle against the stubborn Goths. A young man who's in Attila's troop admires him and idolizes him and says that if he had a sword like Attila, nobody could stand before him. Attila tells him that the sword is no better than the owner and he lends the boy his sword and tells him to go off and prove himself a true Hun by returning with the head of, the, the head of an enemy. The boy walks into the city where just about everyone is dead and then he sees another young man who is obviously disoriented, and he basically makes quick work of him. 
Unfortunately for him, though, that boy who he just killed has a sister who runs at him with an axe and kills him. Then we cut to Attila the Hun is told that the boy can't be found, and he declares they must march on and conquer and that nothing can stop them. And then the last thing we see is uh, a word balloon that says nothing with a question mark. We see the woman that killed the young boy, and she's saying that the Huns might kill their bodies, but never the spirit. And that's the end of this. And the closest thing I can come up to on this issue is it reminded me of the issue of Tomahawk that you did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it, it just seems to fail so miserably at, at everything that I think it's trying to do. Uh, I, I, I know you and I differ on this, but I like Joe Kubert. And it kind of goes against what I normally think because I don't like scratchy art, which is the reason I think you dislike Joe Kubert. But where his art has this scratchy tendency to it, it doesn't seem to be scratchy without a purpose, which is the thing that I really dislike. It, it, the, the scratches just seem, to, you know, they always seem to form an image that makes sense to me, and I don't have a problem with it. But I, I don't want to debate the merits of Joe Kubert because all he did was the cover. Uh, and Rick Estrada, who's, who drew the interior art, is clearly no Joe Kubert because the interior art is almost cartoony at points and uh, I think pretty poor. Uh, yeah, based on I, the cover, I'm I sorry? Don't, I don't care for the Rick Estrada uh, artwork in this at all. I mean, I didn't really ever like him as John Poncherello either, but yeah, his <laughs> art really sucks. I was wondering who was going to make that joke. I'll take a bullet for the team. <laughs> it it seems to me like he's trying to draw like Joe Kubert. Yes, just a does little not too hard. To do it. He looks like a mix between Joe Kuber and who is that guy, Mike, that we were railing on a while back. We we kind of took shit about it. Um, Trevor Von Eden is that? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. look, there's that one Nazi in this that's got, huh? Who was the guy that did Dan Spiegel? Dan we ever... Spiegel, that was it. Yeah. That was it. Although he and uh, the other guy could be like twins or something. Yeah, their artwork. <laughs> That's a great point. But this, there's this freaky looking Nazi dude with the giant uh, chin that looks like he's sucking his lip, his lower lip, through the entire issue. So every time he's yelling and barking orders, he doesn't have a lower. He actually doesn't have any lips. But nine times out of ten, he looks like he's going, ay, 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 and it just looks <laughs> I think he is doing that. And then the other, there's another it's the most guy. most unintimidating Nazi ever. <laughs> there's the, the guy with the glasses. Is he intentionally supposed to look like the Nazi from Laugh-In? Because he really <laughs> Audie Johnson? Yeah. Yeah, doesn't I don't, he? I don't think so. Yes, he does, but I don't think Illinois it's intentional. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. <laughs> Um, in, it, did it, this yeah, go I mean, it's, on it's one just, issue. What's that? Did this go beyond this first issue? As far as I know, this is the only issue, and it's well deserved that it didn't go to two. It's a damn shame because, all right, I have to be, I have to tread carefully here. I would like, I, I think the idea of doing a war book from all right well this is seen through the eyes of the enemy so i took it well it does say world war ii though i took this yeah. to be this was going to be the nazi side of the story yeah that's what 
it's supposed to present, but it doesn't. It fails miserably. Right. It shows them as horrible, horrible villains. Now, I don't want my Nazis to be shown as good guys. I, yeah, I'll come right out and say. tell you that. Right, yeah. But, that's where I was trying to tread carefully is that, yeah, I don't want to get, you know, pro-Nazi propaganda comic books. But at the same time, that idea is a hell of a neat idea when you think about it that, wow, you know, they're really going to be ballsy enough to, to give me the Nazi side of the story, you know? But, but and, they don't give you the Nazi side of the story at all. And they don't at all. You're absolutely you know what? Right. They have the woman and the kid, and they say, well, they're enemies, we got to shoot them. And they shoot them, and that's it. The kid's coming at them with the violin. Well, maybe he has explosives in his violin case. No, he doesn't. Now, you know, maybe <laughs> if, if, if they had... A civilian actually attack them and successfully do something to kill one of their troop. Now you're saying, okay, see, this is what they're on the lookout for, and this is why they have to do this, and this is what creates that moral dilemma for them. But there's none of that. Everything that they do is just vicious and murderous. Right. I I think how you do it is that you don't show them sympathetically like, wow, I, I really understand where those nazis are coming from now because that would just be kind of folly but no you kind of show i mean i i have a as despicable as uh, as the nazis were i have a hard time thinking that every grunt you know in the military was evil you know i'm sure there were people in there that were just horrendous human beings and, you know, especially the people at the top were some of the most evil men that have ever existed. But, you know, I'm talking like, I'm talking like, you know, <laughs> Johann Schmidt, you know, the, and I'm not talking like the, 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 the Red, Red Skull. Skull. No, but John Smith, you know, the, the average guy, John Doe, who, you know, joined the military basically because he had to. And now he's doing this because it's his job. And we're, the story you tell is showing how he becomes hardened. But I, I guarantee you the, you know, Johann Schmidt of 1941 is not sitting there saying, I know that we're an evil regime, but I have no choice. They're being fed propaganda to show why they're not the evil regime and why the Jewish people are evil and why they have to be taken down. And, you know, some people bought it and some people didn't. But, you know, I, I guarantee you that there are people who you would generally consider to be good people who bought into that propaganda. Yeah. So, you know, that's what they, if you were going to try and show this issue as what it's billed as being, which again, I don't know that that's really what Americans want in their comic books, but (laughs) if you were going to try and do that, that's the way you need to do it. Don't show them marching through and killing women and children (laughs) and, 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 and show that the women and children weren't going to be a threat anyway. Right, yeah, because if, yeah, I agree with you. That That's how I feel about this exactly, is that if you're, basically, I feel like they kind of pussied out. Like, they bill it on the cover that you're going to get this from the Nazi point of view. You're going to understand their point of view. Hopefully, you'll still find it completely reprehensible, and you won't root for these guys but we're going to we're going to we're going to try to explain it to you you know how they viewed their side of things instead you open it up it's a standard war book with nazis being nazis and you get no depth or anything so that would be like there being you know a, a version of the walking dead 
We're told from the zombie side, and all you see is the <laughs> zombies going around eating people, and you get absolutely zero motivation or story or anything. It's the same damn thing. So, yeah, I think it fails spectacularly. But the bigger thing to me is just the idea that that would even be an idea for somebody to want to do in what year did you say this was? 76. 76. That, you know, this was an era where, where comics were still for kids as far as everybody, you know, Joe public was concerned. Comics were for kids. And it was the bicentennial. And the, oh, Jesus. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but you know what I mean? I mean, what an you know, interesting concept, but are you serious? You know, it, are you really prepared to do this? And obviously they were not. It was a bold idea, but very poorly executed. Yeah. But I, I, th- I think it's interesting you said, you know, showing The Walking Dead from the point of view of the zombies. And then I, I just picture like the Bugs Bunny cartoon where you see everybody running around and they look like hot dogs and hamburgers. <laughs> That would be the zombie point of view, right? Everybody yeah, looks like a meal. Pretty much, yeah. That'd be yeah, I, 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 I didn't read this again, you know, full disclosure, only because mostly because I ran out of time. But only, you know, the other thing was, even if I'd had the time, I don't know if I could have made it. Because man, I just, I just don't, I do not dig on war comics. But you know, I don't dig on war comics because they all look like this. <laughs> I just, oh, this art style makes me crazy. You know, come to think of it, I say I don't dig on art comics, and then I just reminded myself that I've been meaning to ask you, Paul, um, you know, you did uh, a couple episodes ago the the issue on um, Nick Fury. Are you reading the new Max imprint Nick Fury book that's coming out right now? I haven't yet. I have, and I, I intend to read them, but I just haven't gotten to them yet. I heard it's pretty good. That's a war book, and I can't wait for each new issue. It's awesome. It's everything a war book should be, in my opinion, because the biggest thing with that, it doesn't pull punches. It's brutal. It is, it's, it's like you would imagine Vietnam probably really was. It's gruesome. It's horrible. It has zero redeeming qualities. Mm. You know, As far as the brutality and everything, it's there to shock you. But the story is brilliant. It's it's got a really intelligent, you know, intelligently written story that makes you think and it makes you squirm. I like that. This does neither. This makes me bored and this makes me yawn. And, and you know where this one fails as well. <laughs> you know, you, you're trying to show it through the eyes of the enemy. So basically. As far as this book is concerned, it's turning the paradigm upside down. And what we would consider to be the enemy is the hero of the story. Right. And in both instances, because there's two different stories, in both instances, the hero of the book, in, you know, in quotations, is reprehensible. And in both instances, the final panel of the book shows someone from the people who they're trying to squash you know, having their willpower hold up throughout the vicious and unfair beating that they're taking. So they're basically showing that these reprehensive people still aren't successful at, at you know, defeating them uh, as far as their will goes. That there's, you know, there's still the desire to fight against them. So I, it just fails on so many levels. 
It does. But you know what? It also it just occurred to me that something very similar to this um, that that I'm familiar, I'm sure that someone else out there somewhere tried and and you know either succeeded or failed to do the same thing as you know to tell a war story from you know the other perspective. But the only you know I have zero experience with war comics, but one um, example I can think of that I thought worked brilliantly, and it's basically the same concept was. Um, Star Wars Empire. There were a lot of stories during the run of that book that were told from the perspective of the Imperial grunt on the ground. You know, not not Mm -hmm. not, you know, the the Emperor, not Vader, you know, not any of the big head honcho guys, you know, the the evil officers, so to speak, just the regular enlisted guys, you know, the guys on the ground. Like Tag and Big. Yeah, and and there was a uh, there was a story where basically they're led into a slaughter, and it's a great story because it's very tension filled. the The character that you you come to follow and really like and and kind of sympathize with when it gets toward the end of the story and and he's in mortal peril, it's a punch in the gut, and it's 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 doubly so because on the one hand you realize man I really like this guy I sure hope he doesn't buy it but then it's a double punch in the gut when you stop to think of he's an imperial you know I'm not supposed to be rooting for this guy he's scum he's he's a baby killer and all this other stuff but that's a story that does this concept right I would have I would have really enjoyed this if if they had come through with that concept of you know Jesus, these are Nazis. Yet I feel bad for this guy. You know, I you know I I, I hope he doesn't die at the end of the story, kind of thing. But I don't know. See, I'm with whichever one of you guys said. I you know I just don't I don't want to root for the Nazis. I you know so that mm-hmm. to me is is where I get back to my original question of what the hell were they thinking? You know, in 1976, I don't think the world was ready for a, a, a book that could portray a Nazi the slightest bit sympathetically or or heroically or likably at all. I'm not sure that we should even be doing that today. But in 76, really, especially I, you know? I think that's I, I think that's why Blitzkrieg didn't hit issue 500. Well, yeah, 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 definitely. But you know, in in theory in most cases the best villains are the ones that you know, in their mind, if you were writing the story, they're the hero. Uh-huh. Uh, but every right. once in a while, you need a villain who's just a villain. Uh, right, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, your, your, your idea, you know, and I agree with you, the best villains are the ones that, you know, they're fully formed characters that you may not agree with them, but you can at least see their side of the story and, and see their motivation and that sort of thing. And maybe even find a little bit of sympathy in them, even when they're being absolutely you know reprehensible and horrible in their actions. But see, the difference for me is I don't mind that when it comes to Darth Vader or Dr. Doom or, you know, whoever. I mind that a lot when it comes to Adolf fucking Hitler, you know? <laughs> You know, that, that's, I mean, I know, you know, there's, they could write books on what you think of the Dark Knight, uh, 
But the one line in that movie that is kind of fitting is when, uh, when Alfred says, you know, sometimes you can't look to the motivation. Sometimes people set the world on fire because they want to see it burn. Right. You know? And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the way Nazis should be portrayed in, in comics. I'm, I, I, I feel bad for people of German heritage who, you know, are tired of hearing that. But, you know, it's a dark era. What are you going to do? I agree. And you, you did, yeah, I think, uh, you know, either, either you knowingly dismissed or uh, missed the comment that I made uh, when I mentioned Tag and Bing. I'm just curious, are you familiar with that story at all? Yeah. Oh, you are? Okay. Because I, I just, uh, I find those to be very funny when I read Rosencrantz them. and Guildenstern are dead on the Death Star. I mean, it's, it's a great idea. Oh, all right. Now I, now I know what you're talking about. When I, you said I, from the Stormtrooper point of view, and I mentioned Tag and Bing. Right. I think I have one of those specials. I'm not sure I've ever read it, but now that you said now I know who you're talking about. I'm well, sorry. It, I, I mean, it's, it's very silly, and it, it basically has these two guys who have misadventures, and basically, inadvertently, they put everything into motion that goes on in the movies. Oh, wow. All right. Now I want to read that. I do like those kind of those stories. And and it's totally played for laughs. It's not like one of those things where it's just so coincidental that you start, you know, rolling your eyes because it's stupid. Because it's meant to be funny. I think what I've got, I, I I'm not looking at the moment at the at my database, but I think what I've got is the second one. And so, you know, so I I've never read the first one. I don't own the first one, so it just sits there, and I've never read it until I you know I get the first one. But I'd like to. I, I have heard good things about that. I like the different images I've seen in like, you know, back issue solicitation, you know, back material solicitations with Dark Horse and stuff for like the collected edition or whatever. But uh, if you're if you're recommending it, I'll have to check it out. I picked up one of the trades when like one of the Barnes and Noble stores shut down and I got it for, you know, a song. And uh, like I said, it made me laugh and my son got a big kick out of it. <laughs> Well, you know, for uh, for an issue that's uh, really not any good at all, we uh, I think we got some good talk out of it regardless. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm not used to being this negative. Today I had bad things to say about all three books, which is not, not my normal uh, tact, but hey, so be it. I just think that this issue would have looked a lot better if it had been all drawn by Joe Kubert. And I mean that because Joe Kubert did war comics better than anybody. And I think Estrada is trying to do a very poor man's Joe Kubert throughout this entire story and it ends up looking cartoony. Yeah, I agree. So, I wonder who inked this cover because I see the slightest bit of um, Dizaniga in there, but I don't know if I'm imagining that or not. But the soldiers themselves, the Nazis themselves in the, in the foreground look like they could have been inked by uh by Dizaniga, but Kubert's the only signature that's that's actually on the issue. I noticed a number of pages inside the book. Um trying to find one uh here we go. Page four, the very bottom panel, the the inset panel of the guy Close saying the guy's mach- Yeah, he's saying machine gun fire coming from that bakery. That actually looks a lot like Norm Brayfogle to me. Like a lot like Norm Brayfogle. That's one of his more successful Hubert recreations, I think, too. Yeah. That one's not a bad facial expression as compared to the other stuff. 
But then the guy on page, uh, where's this, page five, where he's about to throw the grenade, he looks like he just smelled a fart. He's like going like, <laughs> or, or even even when the grenade comes flying in, the guy in the bottom right-hand corner, is that Inspector Clouseau? <laughs> You're right. Ah, DC, what were you thinking? What were you thinking then? What are you thinking now? Hey, that was my indie. It was not a DC. <laughs> you shut your mouth, Scott Gardner. <laughs> well, any anything else? Any closing thoughts? Uh, have fun at Star Wars Celebration. Oh, thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. And have a good time at Dragon Con, because I don't think I'll be speaking to you till afterwards. Yeah, and if we record... <laughs> The next time we're supposed to record, it'll probably be the day I get back from it. And I'll be like, eh. Well, next one will be episode 100. So uh, if you're going to be beat, we might have to put it off for a couple of days until, you know, we want to at least be on a good. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll get it worked out. Absolutely. All right. So next time, Paul sings NFL Super Pro. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> super pro, super, super pro. pro. He runs super down the field pro. and tosses the ball. <laughs> Sorry, I was actually doing super pro to the theme to the theme song of Supercar. <laughs> you know, it, it it's pretty much impossible to get me to sing, but I think it would be difficult to get you to not sing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a lot of theater in high school. And- That training is still there. God forbid I even hum a tune, my daughter says. Oh, please stop. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Oh, that idea, by the way, was to uh, to get a hold of Alec Berry, but I only entertained it very, very briefly. I literally have never spoken to him again since he, he quit. And that's not my, on my end. That's on his end. I mean, he, the, it's like he just fell off the face of the earth or something. I have no idea what became of him. Because I tried to get in touch with him afterwards and just never never heard anything back, but... The idea was the there, original you know? uh, back to the bins guy. Yeah.
Yeah, the, I mean, the idea came up, you know, briefly that, hmm, you know, I wonder what he's up to if he'd be, you know, if he knew the show was coming up to 100, would he be interested in, you know, putting in an appearance or what, but... Well, to be fair, he's probably in college. Yeah. But ultimately, I was just kind of like, meh, you know, he hasn't he hasn't ever been in contact or expressed any interest up till now, so I was like, meh, to hell with it. But it, it was just... It came up because it was on the forum not long ago. Somebody just out of the blue asked me, you know, hey, what's up with, with Alec Barry? And I had to admit that pff, I have not a clue. Not a clue. I usually don't try to track down underage kids on the internet. Right, exactly. They, they, yeah. they tend to frown on that in most yeah. social circles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't remember the early early episodes. I only, probably only listened to a handful of those because they were roll good. Before. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed them. I mean, when, when, when Scott asked me to be on the show, I, I, I was like, oh, shit, I better listen to all of them, uh, which I did in pretty short order. So uh, I, I, I think it was an interesting dynamic. Um, that uh, that Andy and Michael have pretty much perfected. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. They're worth it. Well, I'm going to let you guys go. I'm going to play a game of you don't know Jack and go to bed. <laughs> All right. Have a good night. Have a Is good. That a week. euphemism? No. We right, should so just- we should totally do three more episodes before episode 100. And it should be 99 and a half, 99 and three quarters, 99 and like 15 sixteenths or something like that, and then 100. Just to f*** with them. <laughs> Who are we f- with, though? <laughs> them. <laughs> the man. That's it. Yeah, the man. That's exactly We're it. We're going to give it to Stan, but good this time. Because <laughs> Stan kids. Well, well uh, since he was, ta- you know, they took pictures of him shredding Superman number 75. And what? You didn't see those on Facebook, dude. Some some radio, like internet radio show, had him on, and he was like, they like took a picture of him saying that you know with a note that said Superman was. Ba- I wish I could remember it, but it was pretty insulting, and he's smiling. And then it, they had a picture of him shredding a copy of Superman number seventy five. Wow. So, he probably didn't even know what they what he was doing. I I just assumed that they that he is completely senile at this point, and they just <laughs> into it. So, here, Grandpa, hold this like this. Okay, say cheese. Now drop it into the machine. Okay, kitties. Can I tell you about the time I created everything? (laughs) (sighs) I created Batman, don't you know? I sat there with Bob Kane and told him how to do it. (laughs) The day Stan Lee believed his own hype. That's not me insulting Stan, Scott. I know. Oh, I know, I know. I can you take all... a joke. Well, no, not really, but I'll pretend. <laughs> you, you can't take a joke. You can take a joke about other people. Yes, yes. <laughs> I do revel in others' pain, yes. There is a little bit. Of, yeah, actually, that was the uh, what I told Rachel when she's like, do you, you want to go see the Spider-Man musical? I go, this isn't even good on like a schadenfreude front where you know it's just happy at the misfortune of others i mean rachel's like i just want to see the play that people almost died making so i don't know i you know some things like that i figured when they get so blasted like that that it can't possibly be as bad as what they're saying and uh, sometimes i'm wrong and it is as bad but th- there's i don't know I, if it was Swiss cheap enough mess. i'd give it a shot i wouldn't spend top dollar to see something like that yeah but like if it was I said, like my 20 wife bucks, found, like, i'd be like, like ticket i'd go, go. 
<laughs> it's a fucking musical. I just, I, that's the part I can't get past. It's like, what? You know what? Most of the times, I mean, it hasn't, I haven't been to too many, and I'm far from a Broadway regular. Uh, but when my wife and I have gone to a play on Broadway, and, you know, we've seen a, several musicals, they're entertaining. I don't know. I just, you know, you, you, you can't pay me enough to go sit somewhere and listen to, like, Aunt May belting out, you know, oh, Peter, he's such a nice boy. I'm like, nah, I'm, huh? What? Why I'm, are you doing that? I'm pretty confident that's not one of the songs. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, the music's by Bono. I think it can't be that hard. Oh, oh dude, really? I'm yes. not saying I'm not a big U2 fan by any stretch of the imagination, but it's okay. It's All not right. like it's not like having Aunt May sing "Oh Peter." I mean, <laughs> you know, it's got to be a step better. Than now that. I'm gonna go write that song. <laughs> maybe that'll be the. Maybe we should make the hundredth musical episode. That's not a bad idea. Oh, it is too a bad idea. Don't even think about it. It's such a groove to be free. Leave my teenage troubles behind. Lay my past beneath a mask and climb to impossible heights. I never dreamed. to me to finally be free of the clown that was holding me down painfully but now I'm free unbelievably free I only look down on the town that always gave nothing to me It's such a groove to be free Leave my teenage troubles behind Lay my past with a mask And fly through fabulous flights Let it be Of the game, I'm the man of the hour, and so I'm free, amazingly free, free of the shame, of the pain, no longer a man without
It's such a groove to be free Leave my teenage troubles behind Lay my past beneath the mask And climb to impossible heights It's such a groove 